Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. And welcome to Volume 3 of our show, on location at the Destin Charity Wine Auction. Official top-line number, a record $3.6 million raised during the weekend events. So after the bills are paid, that means a record $3 million benefiting underprivileged kids across Florida's Gulf Coast. This event aligned with 16 different children's charities across the Florida panhandle, so it has a wide and deep impact on many communities. In this episode, we'll catch up with John Russell, president of the Destin Charity Wine Auction Foundation, also board member Corey Fosdick, and one of my favorite chefs in the Southeast, Scotty Schwartz, joins us as well. First, though, a legend from the Kentucky Bourbon Trail joining us in Destin, Bill Samuels Jr. from Maker's Mark, the second generation of the famous family from Kentucky who took over in 1975 and retired a few years back in 2011. At least he claims to be retired. Bill's son, Rob, now in charge of not screwing up the whiskey, as they like to joke. Maker's Mark donating a barrel of their custom-blended whiskey to the auction, which was obviously a big hit. And Bill was there to represent. I asked him to reflect back on the journey from a small distillery to a worldwide brand, and he remains very humble to this day. I might have built it, but I didn't I didn't create it. And it's the founders that really deserve the credit. And I, I think there was a little luck involved. Uh, you know, it's always tough when you're going first and trying to bring bourbon from swill to swell. And, that, and that's basically what my mother and father did. Uh, they didn't sell too much of it. They were both craftsmen. They were much more interested in the foundation which uh, just gave me a better shot of being successful. When you get something that's as smooth and nice as Makers, and that was the objective, and as consistent, because it is an agriculture product, and, uh, and all the vintners know that it's, uh, it's very difficult to create consistency in a batch-to-batch process. So, and, and, and the, luck, the luck was we didn't, if we failed, we didn't eat. I mean, that was the only thing we had going. We had one product. We we weren't too good at marketing, so we had to had to figure out how to make bourbon relevant at the same time that we were trying to elevate Maker's Mark. Obviously, you learned a lot. What's the one thing? What's the most important thing you learned from your folks? Well, the most important thing is the thing we're doing right now because now we actually have a business. And it's a global business. And the thing is that all my father's sacred cows are still relevant. If you go to business school, you'll learn the first thing is bury the sacred cows. Open your mind. We deliberately close our mind. I mean, we get all our grain from the same farms, neighboring farms. Uh, you know, in the beginning when I started, and uh, we were using 60, 70 acres of grain. We use 9,000 acres now. All from the same farms. We, of course, we had to financially support the farms. As, as we got bigger, they had to be partners rather than vendors. Uh, there's, about, there's a list of about 50 or 60 things 
cook the grain separately, enter the whiskey in the barrel at an extraordinarily low proof. Softer whiskey comes when you enter the whiskey into the barrel. It's very expensive to do that because you need more barrels and more rickhouses. And then since the aging conditions are dramatically different from the top of the house to the bottom, if you're really trying to produce something consistent, you can't take over-aged whiskey and blend it with under-aged whiskey and end up with something. So we're into this this rotation process of all the barrels every year. And, you know, it's just extremely labor-intense. As uh, your business has grown, so has the industry. And uh, it's been interesting to see in America the emergence of craft cocktails and, uh, you know, really, prohibition killed an industry, but it also killed a lifestyle. And we're seeing all of these amazing craft cocktails come back with Maker's Mark, obviously. So, it, it, for lack of a better word, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh, it's real cool. The part I see is, is all the craft distilleries. We've, you know, uh, between 1945 and 1995, there was only one whiskey distillery in America start up and it was ours between 1995 and today there's been over 2100 so uh, you know mom and dad really created something special I'm glad it ended up being bourbon rather than rye whiskey or any of the others it's and we've got some wonderful craft distilleries now my being retired I retired eight years ago my son took over it just gives me a free a, a lot of free time to visit with the other distillers. That's got to be a pretty awe-inspiring thing for a lot of those young guys and gals coming up to be able to sit down with you and pick your brain about stuff. I don't know as much as, as they think I do, I'll tell you that. I don't know. Well, I'm getting old. I got You know, you get senile when you get old, and I'm, I'm getting a little of that. But I, re- I really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's so cool to be part of an industry that's growing, that's attracting incredible talent. I, I mean, I'll get five or six letters a week from graduates of Ivy League schools now wanting into the business, into our industry, into, into makers, where before we couldn't drag them in. So it's, I mean, it's really cool. A lot of smart young people doing a lot of really neat things. So, I mean, now you go around, too, and you say maker's mark. I mean, everybody knows who you are and what you're talking about. And that wasn't the case even maybe 25, 30 years ago, right? No, it wasn't the case 10 years ago. We, While we started all this, I mean, makers, well, my mother and father brought connoisseurship to bourbon. That was their contribution. Uh, and also the Kentucky Bourbon Trail started at our place because she wanted to give my sister a job. So, I mean, just all those are the two biggest things going on in bourbon right now, and they both happened because of my parents. When you look back and then you shift and you look forward, where do you see the future of the industry going moving forward? Well, you never know. But I would rather go with this army of young talent we have in the industry to have to solve problems. I, th- I, I think the smart people are there. I see, I see two things. Uh, one's a wish, and the other I think, I think we're gaining on now. And that is uh, when Kentucky bourbon becomes the next wine. And Kentucky becomes Sonoma County. And that's, and that's already starting to happen. I mean, we all have wonderful experiences at our distilleries, art, 
uh, restaurants, overnight accommodations. I mean, it's it's as neat as it gets. Beautiful country, too. And talk about that. I mean, because, you know, I think that uh, the American consumer now is so much more hyper-focused on what you do and how you do it, and they want to know what's different about you versus your neighbor versus this guy or that gal or whoever it may be. It's uh, it's a very interesting time, isn't it? Well, and it's a little confusing because my the, the first 50 years I spent in the industry, the they weren't coming to us. We had to, I mean, we had to go shake the bushes. But uh, but there, last year we had maybe 170,000 visitors to the plant, and we are out in the wilderness. Uh, of all the distilleries on the Bourbon Trail, we're the hardest to get to, so you've got to really want to get there. I'm talking one-lane roads. It's not good. Nobody's turning them away. I mean, you got, it's got to be very satisfying, and I know you gave credit to your folks and all that. You've spanned the generations, and, and to see see everything where it's at today not only on your farm but in america i mean it's got to be pretty pretty cool well it is cool and i think i'm not much of a reflector so i gotta i gotta do it on purpose because i'm always looking ahead but i you know i do think occasionally wouldn't it be neat if my if my parents could come back and mom could see this little place that she actually wrote the application for it to become a national historic landmark it was the first beverage facility in the country. She did that. Now it's, I mean, it's probably the best-looking factory in the world. And it's, just, and my father to come back and see that we're still, we're still using the old roller mill. We're still not cooking under pressure. All these things that he laid out as important to make good whiskey. And I'll tell you the reason that happened. That happened because when his grandson, my son, was in high school. He would work at the distillery in the summers, and he would stay with his grandparents over uh, during the week. And he got a big culture blow just by staying with them. And I see benefits of that every day now. So, uh, you know, so we didn't have to, it didn't have to go from dad to me to him. It went directly to Rob. And so he didn't miss a lick on the culture side, which is what holds us together. You think he's doing it better than you? I think he's doing a lot better. That everybody else does too. Yeah, he. Uh, it took me. When I started, we were selling seventeen thousand cases, you know, which is about what a craft distillery is today. And when I retired, we were like at, at one point one million. Rob's been running it now for eight years, and he's two and a quarter million. But the remarkable thing is, no compromise on how the stuff's made and how the ingredients are sourced. Uh, when my mother, who designed the bottle and had the idea for the wax and all, she didn't have any common sense at all, but she was real smart and had great design sense. And Dad said, this is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. How are we going to get it on the bottle, and how are people going to get it off? And she looked at him real funny, and she said, well, hell, I don't know. You're just going to have to figure it out. <laughs> if you want to, you've got to figure it So, So last year, with with all the bottles, we haven't figured out how to do the wax yet, so it's still hand-dipped. We dipped 24 million bottles at the distillery last year. Everybody's got big muscles now and everything. <laughs> it's, so I guess, you know, you're not a reflective guy, but if you're looking forward, you're obviously, the one word you have to associate with everything is proud, right? Yeah, I really am. I, I'm, I'm proud of myself for not taking the bait and cut corners. Because I'm, I'm the entrepreneur in the family, and I, you know, it's people like me that, 
just like to cut corners. But Dad was watching, and my son has no inclination to cut corners. He was so influenced by his grandparents that I, you know, I think we got another 30 years before it's going to get screwed up, and it might not get screwed up then. <laughs> Listen to this. I retired, and, we, and it was at a board meeting. There were like 12 of us in the room. And Dad stood up and gave me the ceremonial key to the bathroom. And his advice was, please don't screw up the whiskey. That was it. So when I retired, we had 6,000 people at the party. And I made my son get up on stage with me, and I told him the same thing. Please don't screw up the whiskey. <laughs> and he hasn't. Well, uh, congratulations on all the success. And, and this event here I know is special, and it's got to be great for you to connect with people. I know you're enjoying this role a lot, right? Well, I, I don't get out much. Part of my deal in retiring was if people come to me, I'm in. And, and we do a tremendous amount of entertaining of VIPs and uh, trade people that come to the come to Kentucky, come to the distillery. I have them over to the house for drinks and cocktails. And I still go to the distillery two or three times a week and show people around. Uh, but I don't do much on the road. It's about my back and my knees, and, and I'm 80 years old. Uh, I feel really good. But uh, Rob came last year, my son, and he said it's it's the best he's ever seen. He said this is the best organized thing, and it is so worthwhile. Two and a half million dollars for charity? He said we're in. And then he got a conflict, something came up, and I jumped all over it. I said let me go. So he's giving away a barrel. All you got to do is come up to Kentucky. You don't get to select it. You got to make it. And that that's about a six-hour process of of going through that and i'm gonna i'm gonna be there with the folks that uh do it and you know he's he's a little a little tight too and and when he said he was giving away a barrel i said my god rob that's fifteen twenty thousand dollars he said but everybody else is too he said there's so much so many open hearts at at this particular event and so many good people doing great things i know they appreciate you being here and the donation and uh i appreciate your time it's been great sitting down with you thank you my pleasure Have that bill samuels jr an honor for us to share a table at this event and look forward to our trip to kentucky next spring to go behind the scenes with bill rob and the team at makers mark well this destin charity wine auction certainly has a lot to offer much more than just mind-blowing wines we just proved that the food is also on another level with several top chefs from the southeast joining forces and one of our favorites is chef scotty schwartz if you live in the jacksonville area or you travel there as i do you know what i'm talking about and if you don't visit 29southrestaurant.com and just check out the menu your mouth will water I'll take the lumpy blue crab cake for an appetizer, the fried shrimp and grits with a side of green beans, and the award-winning coffee and donuts for dessert. Depends on which day of the week. Maybe some pie, too. What a location this is. 29 South on 3rd Street. An historic home there. Beautiful setting. And great to see Chef Scotty and Destin, where he's been a major supporter and helped this event get bigger and better every year. It absolutely does. I mean, it's just amazing what they can do um, as far as the venue, as far as the, the programming and everything else, but also just in the amount of money that they raise for these great charities. 
That's fun, too, and that's what I like about this event is a daytime event. Uh, people are mingling right now. We're going to go into the tent, raise a lot of money. There's some after parties tonight. There's lots of food. I know you've been involved in that. There's really, I mean, there's a few other events out there, but this one I think is special, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I've done Atlanta Food and Wine, South Beach, uh, Sarasota, but Destin for me, I mean, it's just amazing. A lot of times you go to these events and it's about, and it's about who do you want to see, who want, you know, who do you want to see you. It's kind of a status symbol where here, honestly, it's all about the charities, but also they have so much fun. I mean, I, I, can, I can remember my first year sitting in that big hall when, when the auction was going on. It was like, it wasn't like you were going to a, to a community event or anything like that. It was like you were going to somebody's backyard barbecue and everybody knew everybody and they were having the time of their lives. It's, it's amazing. And they get wild in there. It's <laughs> fun. So, Scotty, how'd you get into cuisine? When was it in your life that you realized this is my path, this is what I want to do? I think it's when I didn't get into medical school. I mean, honestly, I always loved to cook. I, I cooked with my mother and my grandmother, you know, my whole life. It was something that I loved to do as a hobby, you know, for my college roommates and stuff like that. But it's not really something that I intended on doing. And, um, you know, one day it just hit me, look, you know, why not do something that you love to do? And so, you know, at that point, my, you know, my career aspirations changed. I ended up going to culinary school, uh, worked with amazing chefs, got to travel the world and staged in Italy and France. And uh, I just fell in love with it. And, you know, it's just something that I, that I happen to love, but I'm also good at, you know, and why not put the two together and, and make a life out of it? <laughs> Although there are times where, you know, uh, desk jobs look pretty good, too. <laughs> well, we're glad you didn't choose the desk job. So, uh, stylistically, how do you describe yourself? I mean, stylistically, you know, I was trained more in European food and, and that kind of genre. But when I moved to Fernandina to open my own restaurant, uh, you know, I started off down that path. But then I realized what people love most from my kitchen was southern it was the southern food that i grew up with that i cooked beside my grandmother and my mother and you know the restaurant evolved and now you know we consider ourselves modern regional cuisine which is just a fancy word for upscale you know southern but you know we uh it's what's popular it's what you know puts people in seats and it's what i've become known for so uh, you know, I embraced it, and to be honest with you, again, it's like cooking in Mama's kitchen when I'm cooking in my own. Still the classics, though, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, you know, we mix in the, um, you know, the southern fried chicken with, uh, you know, every now and then you'll see a torsiana foie gras show up on the menu for a, for a uh, you know, New Year's Eve dinner or something like that, but usually it's served alongside of a grilled quail or... You know, something like that. So, Settle a bet for me. Chicken and waffles, true southern style. Is it on the bone or off the bone? I mean, for me, all fried chicken should be on the bone. So I would say on the bone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to ask an authority that because you get it both ways, right? right. So, so it's a lot easier to eat 
off the bone, but you know what? Sometimes you got to work a little harder for the good stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, Jacksonville, Florida, all the South, uh, the food scene has really taken off, not only across the South, but we've seen it out West. We've seen it all around the country. Really, I want to say the last 10 years, maybe more 20, but it seems like there's this intense focus on what you do now that there wasn't right 10 or certainly 20 years ago no absolutely i mean uh you know emerald you know is who's probably one of the most famous chefs of all time back when he started you know you know his shows and everything else there were a lot of people that said oh he's a showboat he's this he's that especially the hardcore old school you know chefs but to be honest with you, what Emerald did was he took the chef out of the kitchen. He, the chef used to be back in the cave, and you only came out into the front of the house or to see a customer if you were requested out of your cave. And so, you know, what he did was he brought the chef to the forefront, and he brought, you know, really, he, he kind of brought food to the forefront. And so, um, you know, now... People build, it used to be you built a restaurant and then you found a chef. Now, a lot of times you find the chef and you build the restaurant around that chef. And I think that that is, you know, it's, the, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened in our, in our career and certainly in, in my lifetime in the kitchen was really just being given the stage to just go out there and shine and, and show people what we can do and how much we love to do it. So we now have reality TV shows. We have, we have everything, right? Maybe we have too much in some regards. That's for another show. But where do we go from here? Where do you think American cuisine overall, and this is a very broad question, where do we go from here? Well, honestly, I think that American cuisine has finally found its root holds. Everybody for the longest time, the reason why I trained in France and Italy was because the Italians, the French, the Europeans were always considered the the pinnacle of you know cuisine as a whole, and I have, and I I think I've gotten to the place, and I truly believe that American cuisine, because we have influence from every culture, because we have Latin influence, French, Spanish, Italian, Asian, we have the ability to create. We call it a melting pot of food, but really, you know, a food that no other country can really create. And I think that we are now on the forefront, and I think we have been for quite a few years now, to where we're not always bowing our heads to our European, you know, cousins in the kitchens, that we're actually standing on our own two feet and saying, hey, here we are, how do you like us now? I asked you that. I think that sums it up perfectly because we had a great quote-unquote Mexican restaurant that opened in Seattle. And I asked the owner, I said, so how do you describe this restaurant? Is it Mexican? Is it Tex-Mex? Is it, what is it? And it's, and it's this multiple layers of the onion, right? Of Well, yes, there's some good Mexican, but it's Tex-Mex, and there's a little bit of Southern thrown in there, and it's like, and it comes together, and it's amazing, right? Absolutely. I mean, 
just looking at you know Mexican food alone, I have a Tex-Mex restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida called El Jefe. But within that, you know, you have different regions of Texas, and then the Mexican influences that affected that region, they could have been from the coast, they could have been, you know, from different areas of the interior, and so you have this massive, you know, collage of, of you know, flavors and everything else that come together, and they basically create their own. And so, you know, 20 years from now, Seattle, Seattle Mex might be the hottest thing since, you know, sliced bread, and it happened because you took... You know, you took a chance and you said, you know, we're going to open a place here and we're going to let, we're not going to stick strictly to tradition. We're going to let these influences kind of as we did at 29 South evolve into something special. That's awesome. So um, when you're by yourself and you're not cooking for somebody else, you're like, what are you making? Or does it depend on the day? It depends on what my kids are screaming for. That's basically the... The, the impetus behind almost anything that I make, but I mean honestly, I do cook. Um, I do cook at home, and it really does depend on the day. I mean, sometimes it's Israeli food, sometimes. But I mean, if if I had to pick the one standard, once again, it goes probably back to southern. And if I have the time to do it, and especially if it's you know Georgia Bulldogs are playing somewhere, it's usually barbecue. And so once I was interviewed um, in Atlanta. And they said, if you weren't eating at your restaurant, where would you be eating? And they expected me to say Le Cirque or, you know, the French Laundry. I said, Old Hickory House Barbecue, right up the road here. They're like, really? I said, either that or Fox Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we love you, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> oh, great to spend time with Chef Scotty. And again, you got to stop in at 29 South next time you're in Jacksonville. Well, so many great people behind this event. want to thank Kate Mikos, who runs the show. It was flawless, fast-paced, and fun for everyone. Hey, let's face it. Sometimes these auctions can be a drag, and the Destin event is a ton of fun. Two gentlemen who are deeply involved in the success of the Destin community, Charity Wine Auction Foundation President John Russell and board member Corey Fosdick. This event is special because it allows us to provide a platform for folks to give back to people, to kids, that can never repay you, and there's nothing better in life than that. And this event's, I think, what, 15 or so years now. It's grown very quickly, hasn't it? It has. Um, for a while there, we were right around eight or $900,000, and then it just took off, and the last couple of years, we've been almost $3 million. What do you think the big switch was? Why did that happen? I think we got known. We, we, got, we had some success, and people started to hear about us, and... Uh, we just have a very committed board of directors that does a lot of recruiting, and uh, people have a good time. So word spreads. <laughs> you know, this is a great place to come to enjoy wine, and as Corey said, uh, give back to the community. Yeah, I was going to say the this time of year, the north half of the country. You're from Chicago. I'm out of Seattle, right? This is the place to be in April and May, right? Well, that's why I moved here. I mean, a little salt air, sunshine, and sand in your toes is a good place to be, especially coming from Illinois, where. It's 40 below this February. Talk about uh, specifically the, the auction lots this year. And I know it just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? It does. And you know what's interesting? Our charities that we support help us with auction lots. So we put together trips from all around the world. The one I love is the Catamaran and the BVIs for a week. Um, we're going to Prague. We're going to, all the way down to Patagonia this year. But also a lot of great wine. And it is a wine auction. And, and our group loves to bid on 
really classic wines that are hard to find in big bottles. This year we have a 12 liter of Cabernet. You don't see a lot of 12 liters. In fact, it's the only bottle this winery will make of that size. How'd you get it in here? <laughs> Three people. <laughs> a forklift, right? Uh, talk about the charities, too, and uh, I want to bring the chefs in as well and talk about them. We're going to interview a couple of them. but uh, Well, each of the charities are local, and that's important. That's part of our mission is that it supports local children in need. There's 14, 15 different local charities, such as the Autism Center or the CVHN, which benefits children that need dental work that can't afford it. And the, the refreshing thing about being involved in this organization, other than having wine served at the board meetings, is the, the commitment that the organization makes to serving local kids and, and helping those, paying it forward uh, to, to future generations. Yeah, and I, you know, it's everywhere we go with these auctions, uh, you know, you realize how many people there are out there that really need this help, right? Yeah, it's it's. It's a wealthy community. We live here. You know, there's million-dollar homes. There's beachfront homes. But right next door, there's folks that are struggling, children that need our help, whether it's with dental work or special needs type of uh, needs, and, and this organization helps provide those. What are you looking forward to most? You know what? The first auction lot is called Magnum Force. It's 50 magnums of wine. It really kicks us off, and we never know what's going to happen, but that usually gets us... Uh, with a good kickstart of at least fifty-five or sixty thousand dollars for that lot, and then it's it's kind of wild. The the momentum starts rolling, and people just they they're generous and they get competitive about winning these lots, and it's a blast to watch. And of course, the whole time we're feeding them, and they, they've got great wine. It was donated by the wineries, and let's be clear, we couldn't do this without the support of the wine industry. They make a huge difference for us. They come down there, they join in the fun, and they they donate, and a lot of times they'll even purchase on the participate in bidding the panhandle of florida i mean you know people think of florida they think miami they think orlando i don't want to say this is a hidden gem but it kind of is a hidden gem isn't it a little bit it's really special place it developed late the water and sand here are caribbean quality and that's why we all live here and and you know the other thing we get a little bit of a winter it gets a little cool and then you get weekends like this and it i wouldn't live anywhere else in florida i've lived in orlando i've lived in amelia island i wouldn't trade those places for here this is just perfect so a little more temperate then? A little more temperate, and, and you can see your toes when you're – you can be shoulder deep in water and look down and see your toes. That's meaningful to me. <laughs> How's the fishing out here? Unbelievable. Snapper season only lasts about a month, but fresh snapper and grouper that we can catch, you know, just going two or three miles offshore, it's incredible. So it's just a wonderful place to live. And it is a wonderful place to visit if you don't live there. want to thank everyone in Destin, and congratulations on another amazing event. We have four volumes of vintage podcasts from our weekend on the Gold Coast of Florida, including a trip to Tommy Bahama in Volume 4. Hope you enjoy your wine travels, and we'll have more for you next time on Vintage. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.